Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. And welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and as always, unfortunately, I'm joined by my great colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul? Look, I'm really good, Peter, and just back from our the Switzer Listed Investment Conferences last week, which yeah. were a huge success in, uh, in Melbourne and Brisbane. One thing that really took me a little bit, Peter, was still the interest in sort of the Hain Royal Commission. And, yeah. Uh, a lot of people are saying it's got a lot to do with bank shares, but I, but I think we've moved on, and it's really now about the, the mortgage broking industry and the financial planning industry, and, and that probably leads into sort of our our first guest, because we're going we're to hear from the CEO of Financial Planning Association. Yes, exactly right. His name is Dante Degori, and this is a, an industry that's really been challenged by the um, Home Royal Commission. And we've seen AMP, AMP, that's part of the reason why a lot of our investors brought it up. A lot of people were invested in AMP, mm. taken to the cleaners by the Hain Royal Commission, and now the company wants to basically get rid of a lot of their advisors and go robotech or fintech. Paul, um, big changes for this industry. Big changes, lots of discussion around things like grandfathered commissions and also in the case of the AMP, the suggestion of some of the advisors, they've... they've uh, the so-called uh, buyer of last resort of some of these advisor practices and suggestions they're going to be suing them and mm. taking them to court. So, look, a, a lot of change yet to come in both financial planning and the mortgage broking industry, so it'll be good to hear mm. exactly what leaders in that profession are saying is, is going to be the impact. Yep. And, uh, and, we, and later on the show, we will be talking to a, a coal-faced mortgage broker and see how the Hame Royal Commission and all the, the changes are affecting him and his business right now. And also, we've got... Uh, exclusive interview with the CFO of BHP, Peter Bevan. And that's really interesting, Peter, because uh, BHP reported last week and uh, looked look pretty much as expected, mm -hmm. I think, and, and, and you'll hear all that from uh, Peter Bevan. But uh, it's just interesting to say what they've got to say about the dividend and what they're doing about the balance sheet because... I proposed posed a question last week that uh, about whether BHP is the new yield stock. Now, mm. I'm always very wary about asking that question because every time we have, uh, you know, Charlie Aitken on the program, yeah. he always brings out the old adage, never buy resource companies for yield. But yeah. you listen to Peter Bevan, and I'm not suggesting it's a yield stock, but they've, they're very fiscally and, and uh, is that the right word, very disciplined these days, yeah, aren't but they? Also, you actually have worked out that the yield on BHPs with franking credits for a retiree is close to 8%. It's close to, gross is up to close to 8%, 5.5% pre-tax, and it's close to 8% if you added the franking can credits. Can it so last is the can question. Can it last? I think uh, we put those questions, you know, like all, C, like all CEOs and CFOs, <laughs> they, they run a little bit when you put the two, but it's more the tone, I think, of what he says that's yeah. important, isn't it? I think Bevan's a pretty uh, good performer, I've got to say, and... Um, I'd be surprised if, under his watch, BHP suffers, except if iron ore prices uh, collapse. And I, I guess you can't blame the CFO if that happens. They can't do anything about that, Peter, but at least uh, our big resource companies haven't made the mistake of most they've done in previous cycles. Mm. 
And what they've done in previous cycles, Peter, is particularly after a really strong commodity cycle, they end up with so much cash, and they say, well, what's the next mine that I buy or the next yeah, thing I do? And they end up buying another, a second or a third tier mine at absolute top dollar right at the top of the cycle and yeah. uh, pay the price the next decade or two. They haven't done that. And then they eventually <laughs> sell it off to Nathan <laughs> Tinkler for a dollar. <laughs> they sell it off to Nathan Tinkler or someone oh. else for a dollar, and they haven't made that mistake yet. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it, that's refreshing. I'm not saying that uh, that's... I should leave it at that, I think. Yeah, okay. okay, so without any further ado, let's go to the CEO of the Financial Planning Association of Australia, Dante Dugori. Thanks for joining us, mate. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, so how long have you been in the job and has it been a trial by fire you know, since the Hain Royal Commission? Look, I'm, I'm three years now in the job and um, the Royal Commission itself last you know, when that sort of took off and, I mean, we're talking over a year ago now, but it was at the end of, I think, 2017 in which it was announced and we weren't too sure about what role, if any, both the Financial Planning Association and also financial planners would be under the microscope and the Royal Commission. Obviously, it was about banks, um, but 2018 turned out to be pretty a pretty tough year considering the amount of scrutiny uh and spotlight that the Royal Commission put on, not only uh, our members and the advice profession, but even the FPA itself. Um, and, uh, you know, having to appear on the stand and, pre- and the preparations for that as well, um, what was was tough, but mm-hmm. so too has been the um, aftermath as well. And so, yes, it, it has been definitely a trial by fire, I think, uh, and uh, it definitely has caused a lot of, anxiety and concern about the future of the profession going forward as a result of yeah. the Royal Commission. So if yeah. you had to pinpoint the pros and the cons of what came out of the Commission, and you're in a good position mm. to judge that because you know, your, your members, um, uh, some of them were you know, castigated pretty badly um, and others you know, who, were, who have been award-winning financial planners were really given a, a bit real shellacking. On the other hand, there's a whole lot of financial advisors who weren't given any praise out of the Royal Commission, but the Commission is not, not there to praise. What were the pros and cons, do you think, of the um, Hain Royal Commission? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and, you know, you do need to, and I'm definitely a, a type of person that has to look at uh, look at this very objectively, um, you know, because there's a lot of emotion in things like this, as you would imagine, um, and you do need to look at both what are the learnings um, and what are the opportunities that are presented. And I have to say, um, in hindsight now, uh, and, and obviously I wouldn't have wanted it the way it, it's turned out necessarily, but the result of it actually may be a good thing in, in this respect. And that is, if you think about what the future financial advice reforms were intended to do when they when they first came out, it was really to transform you know, a practice of individuals selling financial products to the occupation of of a profession who sold advice um, and advice was the core role of, of everything they do and some things need to happen in order for that to transpire and um, I think you know the intent of FOSFA was to do that but the, but the reality wasn't happening it wasn't happening and the, and the and the Royal Commission has really brought that to bear has highlighted the ongoing um, uh, frailties, if you like, within the profession. It doesn't mean that, you know, the, the reality is the majority of financial planners um, have been acting uh, the right way and have been doing the right thing. 
but the, 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 the system itself wasn't, wasn't working right. And the Royal Commission is forcing that system to change. Um, for good or for bad, that, that is going to change. So it's, it's affecting a few things. It didn't tackle head-on vertical integration, as an example, but, um, you know, the market has responded um, and there is, you know, uh, structural change in the financial planning landscape. Um, it's tackled once and for all, you know, the, the legacy conflicted remuneration issues that have existed. Um, and it's also put uh, a highlight again around, you know, some of the some of the way on the practices that have occurred that need to change. Like, for example, you know, if you're going to commit to providing someone ongoing service, you've got to deliver it. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think that's really important. And you know, as part of that process, there's been other regulations uh, that have come into play that are going to improve the education standing of financial planners. Um, you know, all financial planners will be subject to a code of ethics, um, which currently today doesn't exist. If you're not a member of a professional body, you're not subject to a code of ethics. So there are some, some, some fundamental standards that should have always been there are going to come into play. Um, and I think that's going to be good in the long term. So, so let's uh, just uh, let's just take that a bit forward. So, the, the yeah. government got handed a series of recommendations. We're now sort of six months on from the the Hain tabling his report. Where are where are we in terms of some of those recommendations and the timelines in terms of change in the industry? So, maybe you just go through the key ones that are going to impact the financial planning industry. Yeah, so, um, well, the, the, the main one in the spotlight is the removal of grandfathered uh, recommendations, uh, sorry, grandfathered commissions, which is one of the key recommendations. Um, and that, uh, that is legislation is before Parliament, and that's due to end uh, or cease uh, grandfathered commissions from the 1st of Jan 2021. So, so just explain um, those for our, our listeners, just what, I mean... Uh, an example. An example, what's the grandfathered commission? Yeah, Excellent. Um, so, from uh, with the FOFA, the Future Financial Advice Reforms, basically it banned uh, any form of uh, commission uh, from investments and superannuation. So this is a payment that's made basically from the product provider to the financial advisor firm and/or financial advisor, um, and that was banned. That payment was banned from 2013 for any new products right. that a financial advisor may recommend. However, any existing product that had been recommended prior to the new laws um, were grandfathered, and so they were, be, were able to be maintained. Um, they would cease if an advisor recommended that that person left that product or if that product shut down for whatever reason, then that's when the commission would turn off. So they are, it was a declining uh, revenue source, if you like, for some financial planners, Um but uh, there was never an end date. Those, in theory, grandfather commissions could uh, could have continued forever. Uh, what the legislation so, so, says so, now... So just to explain that, so today there are financial planners getting commissions for products that were sold prior to 2013 um, yes. and still getting those commissions. And, and the suggestion that, is that that will be abolished, stopped. That is correct. That is mm. correct. So they are to be turned off. And now, very important, um, uh, sort of important sort of uh, stats for you here. Um, um, over time, the reliance on those grandfather commissions has obviously reduced because they can't you can't create new ones, mm -hmm. but you know they can be ongoing. Mm. Um, as a, as an example, the in the FPA family, um, about the average or the average 
uh, percentage of one's remuneration or advised remuneration that was uh, uh, obtained from grandfather commission is about 8.3% of one's revenue at the moment. That's the SPA average. Industry average is about 16%. Um, 50% of our members today have zero grandfather commissions in their book, but there is about one in 10 had a 30 or 40, uh, 30 plus more percentage reliance yeah. on grandfather commission. So there are, there is a small pocket, um, who have a significant, in, who have a significant impact on this being removed in terms of the remuneration of their practice. But for many of our members and for many advisors, it's a small, insignificant part. Um, that will go. Mm. Um, so, so, so there is a, so there is a, 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 a um, uh, you know, the, the impact isn't widespread, but there are significant pockets that are going to have impacts. The other thing I should point out, to be very clear, also to your listeners as well, is that commissions that consumers or policyholders or investors are paying aren't always going to a financial advisor. Right. So, you know, one of the key tenors of the of the legislation is that, that we have been arguing for is that there are, you know, you probably would have heard of the, the coin of orphaned clients mm-hmm. where maybe an advisor's left the firm or an advisor's left um, or sold uh, back to uh, back to the, um, the uh, institution um, or product providers. Um, they, because commissions are embedded in the product, um, those commission payments uh, form part of the overall fee paid by the, in, the policy or investor they're still being paid. They may not be. They may not be distributed to an advisor, but they're being collected by the product provider. And we've argued very strongly that right. with or without an advisor, those commissions have to stop. Um, so there's no point just stopping it going in the advisor's hand if the consumer is still paying for it. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that means the consumer has getting no benefit out of this legislative change. And so the requirement is that product providers have to have to either reduce the overall fee by that commission or rebate it uh, back to the policyholder or, or consumer or investor um, so that the consumer is actually getting a benefit from it. And that is a very key point um, because if that doesn't happen, then all that's happening is that the advisor is stopping receiving the commission, but the consumer is still paying mm. for it. Okay. Now, three E's I want to talk to you about. One is exits. Are you expecting many financial planners to leave the industry. Secondly, education, the imposition uh, on financial advisors, do you think it's a little bit excessive? There's another E. And finally, ethics. Ethics is is an important part. Can you educate people to be ethical? Um, There's a lot of E's there, uh, (laughs) but I'll start off. That's like being easy on you, uh, Dante. (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, I'll start off with, uh, the first one, which is exit. So there's yep. definitely been a lot of uh, a lot of debate and discussion about um, the numbers and what those numbers will be. Let me give you some some, some initial data just to give a bit of context. Um, uh, with the advent of the financial advisor register that was um, produced by ASIC uh, about two or three years ago, um, for the first time we actually had a public register of every single individual in the country who is licensed and authorised to give personal financial advice to a retail client, to a mum and dad client. Um, that register peaked at 20, just under 29,000 at the end of December last year. Um, and and to give you a bit of context as to where that number came from, or where, where that number grew from, in the Ripple inquiry, which was the Storm Financial Collapse Inquiry, 
um, the numbers of financial advisors around there was around 18,000. Now, um, doesn't necessarily mean there's been massive growth, but what it meant was that we didn't, there was actually no register of people that were authorised. And so you had a lot of people who are employed, uh, planners who were never listed with ASIC. And so this, for the first time, created a complete list. But at 28,000, just under 29,000 at the end of last year, we are now sitting around 25,000 at the moment. So, um, uh, you know, in the space of six months, there's been um, a, a drop in number of advisors. But it's not all because of exits. Um, so there's been an artificial increase because of the fact of education, which is your second E. Um, the education changes uh, put people into two camps. Either you're an existing advisor who has transitional rules or you're a new advisor that has separate rules in terms of education. Um, if you wanted to be treated as an existing with transitional rules, you had to be on the register by the end of last year, and hence the reason why there was a big spike. People have come off the register now because they don't need to practice, but they get the transitional benefit. So then what's the real number of decline or exits? That's hard to say. Our own research tells us that um, our members have told us that between 20 to 30% are likely to exit the industry as a result of education or other factors between now and 2024. Um, so... Uh, you know, but you've also got to include in that number a natural attrition anyway, and we have a, you know, an ageing financial advisor workforce as well. Um, and, um, and on the other side, the pipeline of new financial planners has diminished quite significantly, not because of interest, but because of the requirements to come in. Um, you have to come in with a degree standard and complete a, at least a minimum 12 months of internship, um, and pass an exam before you can be registered. And so that means the process of replacing an advisor who's left, uh, it takes a significant amount of time. Um, David, can so I just inter interrupt? Because I, I want you to come back to the right. other E about ethics. But just before you come to that, what does the government say when you say, look, 20 to 30% of advisors might leave the industry? Do they think that's a good or a bad outcome? It's an interesting one. It's you know, there's a, uh, it does depend on who you speak to. I mean, there is concern, obviously, about um, loss of, you know, a lot of these, as you know, advisors are small business operators, so mm -hmm. that's loss of small business, loss of employment. There's obviously, it's tainted a little bit because there is obviously a perception that, you know, that some financial advisors need to move on and need to go. So this is a bit of a cleansing exercise. Not that I think... You know, we were definitely not getting any indication of what they think that number should be. Um, but um, we have raised the concern that, you know, the drop could lead to um, uh, to a number of, uh, of issues, implications. For example, the cost of advice is only going to go up as a result of this because demand mm -hmm. for advice isn't decreasing, it actually is increasing, but then we have a supply problem. Um, uh, notwithstanding the regulatory cost, impost that's been imposed, but just a, from a supply-demand issue, uh, advice costs will go up and, uh, and consumers will then have less access as well as uh, the affordability issue to, to advice. So that's been raised. I think there's a bit of scepticism as to, you know, uh, whether those numbers will turn out. And the reason for that is, you know, the government hears this all the time. Like, I'll give you an example. During the FOFA, uh, when the FOFA regulations were coming in, then too was a big shout out that 
and a lot of advisors would leave the industry. You know, it wouldn't be workable. Um, you know, if you turn off commissions, etc., you're going to kill the advice industry. Um, that didn't happen, and in fact, it grew. So, um, so, so there's a little bit of you know, well, let's wait and see whether this mm-hmm. really does translate. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I, I obviously have to, you know, temper my comments here a little bit. You know, there are genuine. Uh, uh, concerns advisors leaving and advisors have said to me, no, they're out. Um, but there's a lot of emotion at the moment in terms of, you know, people feel like that they are unable to continue for whatever reason. Um, and I think there was a lot of concern that the education standards were way over the top. They have come back a bit um, uh, and I think it's a lot more practical and realistic um, and uh, achievable. And so that may change some people's minds. But you can't underestimate the impact of decisions made by a lot of the big institutions who are getting out. I mean, that's obviously going to have an impact yeah. on advisor numbers. Right, one yeah. last one, Dante. We are running out of time, mate. Sure. Can we educate people to be ethical? Well, look, uh, the answer is yes and no, um, uh, surprisingly. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why. So, yes, you know, we're human beings. We, uh, you know, I think, you know, you, you grow up and the way you're raised and your own family uh, and friends that you surround yourself with embed a level of, you know, moral and values in which you live and grow by. And that forms the basis of the way you treat people in life as well as perhaps you may in work. What is, what is telling is that, you know, for the first time um, professionally, financial advisors will all be educated on the principles of professional ethics. Um, and this is really important um, because it goes beyond just, um, you know, I think most people will intuitively know, you know, are they doing the right thing for their client? But it goes beyond that. And, and sometimes people don't understand because they just haven't been taught it or, or, or haven't been explained. And if you haven't been trained in ethical principles and and the way ethics works in professional terms, then it is sometimes hard to understand. And and I'll give you an example. Most people think that if you remove commissions, all conflicts are gone. And we know that conflicts exist in all business models. I mean, there isn't a pure model um, that isn't conflicted. And even, you know, people talk about hourly-based or hourly uh, fee charging as being non-conflicted. Well, we we both know that obviously, you know, if someone wants to, I mean, you can take advantage of that model and charge uh, additional hours, um, you know, and, and, and that can, that model can also be uh, taken advantage of in terms of that pricing. So there isn't a pure model. Um, there are more issues of conflict than just a direct remuneration benefit. Um, and there are other ethical dilemmas that advisors haven't been traditionally trained in. You know, and a classic example is, you know, the scenario in which you know, an advisor has, most advisors, as you know, um, uh, provide advice to couples. You know, husband and wife, couples who come in and you're providing a plan. You know, separation and divorce happens. Um, you know, and, and some advisors, you know, still think it's appropriate, for example, that you want to try and provide advice advice to both during that uh, separation or divorce. And, and, you know, and from a professional ethics point of view, you can't be the advisor for both during that scenario. Um, and again, people just aren't trained on that. Mm. Um, and so there is, you know, there are elements of those ethical dilemmas that need to be taught and trained and people need to be trained on that. And we are going to be retrospectively training a whole bunch of people around that. 
But going forward, it means everyone coming into the profession will have that base training. And so therefore, in the long term, to answer your question, sorry, long way around, but to answer your question, I think you can teach people to be to understand their ethical obligations. Um, and secondly, it's going to then create a barrier. So for a long time, the profession has attracted people who saw a quick career change earning a lot of money quickly. Yep. Um, what's going to happen now is if you want to become a financial planner, you're going to be earning that position to become a financial planner. And so therefore, you are going to um, do everything you can to maintain your license. Um, because it's not easily to obtain, okay. and I think that's going to change. One last one, Dante, and they're trying to wind me up because you've been you've been talking for a long time, but I've enjoyed every minute of it. One last one. Yeah. Do you think when a financial planner really brings the industry into disrepute, they should cop a life ban? I think some of these bans have been disgracefully short. What do you think? Life ban? Look, um, I I'm think, not a long I answer think, either, Dante. Get get. No, <laughs> look, look. Yes, I mean, in principle, yes. I mean, I think if you are going to attract the right people and you want behaviour to change, yep. you have to make sure that the punishment is there as well. The deterrence is there. Mm. Uh, people have complained that ASIC has been, you know, uh, too weak um, and has attracted people to, to take advantage of that. Yes. So the, the simple answer is yes. You want to deter people, but it still has to be fair and equitable as well. Um, you know, uh, but, uh, but in principle, yes. Absolutely. Good man, good man. That's a fair, fair answer. Dante, thanks for joining us on the program. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me. And that was Dante DeGore, who is the CEO of the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Now, Petty, you've got a, a fabulous new book out, don't you? Gee, you're, you're a great colleague to say something like that. Yeah, look, I've got a new book out. I think it's a very good book. It's been designed for young people or people who will admit to not being great at accumulating money and getting rich. I'm trying to make something that's very readable but also gives you the kinds of things I learned over probably 20 or 30 years of you know, investing and educating people about investing. It's called Join the Rich Club, of course, Paul. Yeah, I was going to come to the title. Pretty important to mention that it's called Join the Rich Club. Yeah. And, of course, you can get that at, the, at switzerstore.com.au, switzerstore.com.au, or yeah. one word. Yeah. Is that right? Exactly right. And it's a, a price of $24.95. But, look, I know um, since I contributed part of it, it's a great book. And, yeah. uh, uh, as you say, I think it's... Uh, yeah, as, as you say at the beginning of the book, um, yeah, rich or poor, you know, but... Um, I've least, been rich, I've been poor. <laughs> rich is better. Rich is better. And if yeah. you can help your kids, your grandkids or yourself or your partner um, at least improve your financial status, I think that's uh, that's mm. something lots of people want to find out. So where can you about. buy it, Paul? Switzerstore, or one word, .com.au. Well, last week we caught up with the CFO of BHP, a guy by the name of Peter Bevan. It was actually on the day that the company reported, which would have been Tuesday. And um, they gave us a call around lunchtime and Paul, Ricard and myself basically grilled him over the performance of the company. So your underlying attributable profit of uh, $9.1 billion was 2% up the last year. Now, given the big increase in annual prices, what does this say about being a miner in 2019? Are the best days behind BHP? Yeah, look, I think it was a pretty pretty decent result. You know, as you say, you know, we had uh, look, we had some uh, some good prices in iron ore in the sec in the second half. 
Um, but the copper price wasn't that spectacular for this year. Um, look, solid operational result. You put that together, we get another $23 billion of EBITDA. We have $17 billion of net operating cash flow. And so what did we do with that? Well, we continued to deploy that capital allocation framework. So we knock off another couple of billion, more or less, on our on net debt. It's good to have a strong balance sheet at this time. And we continue to invest in the company. You got, you know, more or less, you know, $7.6 billion going into growth projects. They're great projects. And so what is it left over? Left over $17 billion to, to shareholders paid in this financial year and another $4 billion announced today. So, you know, that's... Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, is it as good as it gets? Well, I think that, um, you know, probably there is some moderation in the iron ore price. No doubt about that. On the other hand, uh, that, you know, oil and copper are probably trading a little bit, you know, under their fundamentals because, you know, they are highly traded. And so they are, you know, risk on risk off type uh, commodities. And so it's clearly a risk off type uh, market at the moment. And from the underlying business itself, you know, we will continue to squeeze out more tons and lower costs as we have over the last few years. Uh, we're not, we're absolutely not done yet. And as I say, we've got those great projects, uh, you know, underway. They're all on time and on track. And so when you put it all back together again, I reckon, you know, I think that uh, there is no doubt that uh, yeah, there'll be some short-term ups and downs, no doubt about that. But uh, this company will continue to be just as strong in the in the near and the medium term as it has been. You know, for the last couple of years, Peter, on the on the dividend front, shareholders have had returns. I think totaling about seventeen point one billion US dollars this year. Mm. You've declared a final dividend of, of seventy eight cents a share, taking it oh. to a dollar thirty three US for the full year, roughly close to two dollars Australian. Sure. That's a payout ratio of seventy four percent. Now, your current policies you target uh, a payout ratio of at least fifty percent. So the question is, you know, how sustainable is the is a dividend at that level? I think the the dividend will look. The dividend policy is not the progressive that we used to have. You know, when we just sort of added a you know a bit or you held it every every single time. It is designed for a I think more appropriately for a company that 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 faces near term cycles. Um, and so yeah, I think you know we made uh, a bunch of money this year and we invested sensibly and as I say, strengthened the balance sheet. But you know that left plenty and and we should obviously. Take uh, take that the, those gains, and we should give them back to shareholders, which is what we did. So that seventy four percent payout ratio, I reckon that's you know that's entirely appropriate, and and happy days, particularly at the Aussie dollar being what it is today. Um, so you know I think that uh, we're you know as I say it's it's the, the answer to the to the dividend going forward is is somewhat related to the answer to to Peter's question, which is you know where does it go from here. I think uh, you know our EBITDA, our free cash flow will continue to be strong, albeit somewhat you know on the, in the very near term there'll be there'll be some ups and downs from iron ore and and so on. But look, under, fundamentally, this is a strong company. It's got great assets, strong balance sheet, and and more productivity and more and more growth from from projects. Okay. Well, look, speaking about productivity, um, you by your own data. Um, you went backwards by US billion dollars this year. Now mm. you mentioned things like um, weather, resource headwinds, and unplanned yeah. outages. So, um, what can looking ahead to twenty twenty? What what sort of in train in terms of the productivity front? Yeah, sure. Look, I think you know the first half of this year wasn't wasn't perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. We had you know a bunch of unplanned uh, uh, events that took care of you know eight hundred million dollars. Uh, you know, lost 
even uh, so that's not 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 great by anybody's uh, standards. Having said that, it's been much much more stable in the second half. We had a good good run in the second half, and uh, yeah, there was some great decline, especially in Escondido in, in Chile, and strip ratio is going up in in Queensland coal. Those things will stabilise. In fact, the strip ratio will fall out, go over the top in Queensland in the in the medium term. And so, what what is what is also in, inherent in the, what we just delivered was another billion dollars of, of productivity gains. Now you can't see them because they were outweighed by the uh, by those those grade declines and those one-offs. But those those, those we've continued to lower costs. And we've continued to squeeze more tons, and you can see it very clearly, say in iron ore, where you know we're less than you know sort of thirteen bucks uh, in terms of of costs, and we got more tons out of the place, notwithstanding. Uh, you know the cyclones and so on, and I think that's what you should. That's the trend, and that's what you should expect, and what we expect to see in the next few years. And uh, and there's you know there's a bunch of things that that are really driving that. Um, you know, going from low overhead and uh, you know as I say, grade well, uh, flattening and so on. Yeah, well, Peter, both you and I would agree on one thing. You're a brilliant numbers man. You know, you wouldn't have this job unless you're good at numbers. But how easy is it to do the numbers on a prominent company like BHP when you've got someone like Donald Trump in there throwing curveballs with <laughs> trade wars and yeah. you know, taking on a very important customer to you guys? Yeah. What's it like to actually do the risk management, do the planning when you've got that big curveball out there? Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's a great question, Peter. But, you know, I think we went through the fire in, say, 2015-16, and I really had to learn, we had to learn the lessons of how to manage that. And the first thing, important thing, is to get your settings right, so get the balance sheet where it needs to be, get the cost base where it needs to be, get the, the dividend policy where it needs to be, make sure that you've got the right amount of capital and that you have flexibility in that. So what happens, therefore, is that in the, in the event that the world turns more rubbery, then, you know, we just we just – we just shift. We're going to be in great shape no matter what comes at us. If it's upside, we'll just make even more hay. If it's downside, we're ready for it. And so that's, you know, that is, that is where, how it all boils down to. It's a great question. And uh, certainly as, as we and our team spend a ton of time thinking about exactly that. Just coming to uh, particularly iron ore, um, reading sort of the the text you put out, you don't put out forecasts, obviously, about the iron ore price, but you do talk about the, the quality of the, of your product uh, and being demand for that, and also, I guess, a fairly robust assessment about the state of demand in China. Can you share any more comments about, um, you know, sort of your outlook there in terms of that commodity? Yeah, look, I think I think uh, you know, sort of China GDP, steel, iron ore, metal—they're all correlated, you know. And so what you've seen is, you know, no doubt China continues to slow down, as we've seen for a few years, but it's still sitting at six, and that's still off a bigger base. So you know, make no mistake, steel has been the steel production has been very strong. In fact, uh, over the last few uh, few months and so on. So. Well, you know, underlying of that is, 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 is there's probably four big categories of that drive steel. One is infrastructure. 
um, and the other is, is housing. Those things are subject to the stimuli that the, the Chinese government is, is deploying in response to some of the issues around trade and so on. So, of course, absolutely, the, the Chinese government doesn't, doesn't sit idle when these things happen. And they have levers to pull, and they're pulling them, and you'll see those. And are, we are seeing them, and we will continue to see them coming through steel and therefore into iron ore and into metal. On the other hand, auto has been a bit weak. Machinery has pulled forward. Uh, because of uh, to get ahead of tariffs, so that'll continue to be also a little bit, a little bit on the weaker side. And those are, of course, export-orientated businesses. So you know, China is uh, is not all is not spectacularly you know clean in terms of a story. But at the same time, you know, as I say, it's 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 not exactly falling to bits. And 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 again, to Peter's question, no matter what happens, we're ready for it. Well, one, one last question, Peter. You know, given the the curveballs out there, is is the great plus for a company like yours that so many countries around the world are committing to infrastructure spend over the next five to ten years? I think it is a big plus. You know, the one thing, though, Peter, is that, you know, I think that there is a bunch of people, I mean, Trump himself and the U.S. have been talking about infrastructure, but, you know, sometimes it is takes a little while to, to get the sort of rhetoric, as I say, at a political level, translated into actual, you know, shovel-ready projects and there into, into demand for the products we produce. Now, having said that, I think, you know, no doubt China is, continues to be a very good story, and you're seeing, you know, very strong, I think, infra- infrastructure, uh, you know, growth in the developing countries. So India, Southeast Asia, and so on. So I think those things are really going to continue to underpin, you know, really a large part of what what our business is all about. If you can continue to see some of that, you know, grow, you know, translate into into U.S. infrastructure or European infrastructure, so much the better. But uh, you know that that again, you know, this this is the, one of those things about this organization. It is built on the real fundamentals of the world, and with a so, so the demand side is is going to be there and thereabouts, and with the quality of the assets and our projects, you know, again, that's a, that's a great great combination, and I think we feel reasonably reasonably happy about what the medium uh, and long term holds, knowing that the short term, yeah, no doubt there's some volatility that 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 could come to us. Peter, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Good talking. Now, Peter, in addition to a great new book. We have a new TV show, don't we? We do, and you're becoming a very good promoter. I must do an ad on the ability for you to promote. We might bring more money into our business. Yes, we do, Paul. It's called Switzer TV. It's the old Switzer program that used to be on Sky Business and then the Your Money channel. All the same guests that we used to have, they're all coming in to our studio and um it's on mondays comes out on mondays usually we're there by 7 30 provided there's no uh, hitches and uh the question you're going to ask me is well how can someone find it well how can someone find it peter yeah well there are plenty of complicated ways but the simple ways you go to your favorite search engine which for most people i guess would be google but some people use yahoo you just type in youtube and switzer financial and up comes the tv show and you can subscribe to get a regular link as soon as it's available. We've got people like Julia Lee, Mike McCarthy from CMC. Rudy Philippeck, Van Dyke, yep. Charlie Aiken, yourself. Um, Brilliant. Absolutely. Full Christopher of Christopher Joy. Yeah, some great They're stars. all coming. They're all and coming to the show. Every, every Monday, focus on mainly on shares, but uh, mm. a great new sort of 40, 45 minute TV program that you could just get at any time on YouTube. Yeah, and that's the best time to get it the time when you want it. 
Okay, at a time when the Hain Royal Commission really put the cat amongst the pigeons for mortgage brokers, uh, let's just see what the industry is like right now with Damon McIntyre, who's a mortgage broker with Rohini Finance. Thanks for joining us, Damon. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. I've got to ask this question. You know, when the, the Hain Royal Commission was on and you're listening to the potential implications of maybe a Labor government, were you worried for your business? I was, yes. Um, quite concerned about some of the and some of the policies that Labor had. Um, the Royal Commission certainly threw a, a, um, a, a, lamb, a, a hand grenade in amongst the mortgage broking industry and, and finance in general, but uh, I think and as many people commented that uh, mortgage brokers seem to be the ones that uh, bore the brunt of, uh, of some of those uh, outcomes. And is that all behind us, uh, Damon, or is it still ongoing? I know there was a proposal at one stage for, or the Hain Royal Commission recommended against uh, trailing commissions, but that seems to have mm. been dropped. What, what's the status of uh, his recommendations and where the government is at in the industry is, is sort of playing at the moment? Well, those uh, around the, the trial commissions and those repayment, those payments of our um, fees, if you like, uh, they are going to be reviewed in 2022. Right. It's uh, in place to be done still. But the interesting part is that um, many banks or they're looking at banks and CEOs and how they get paid their bonuses and what they're trying to do with them is actually bring in a deferred payments or a deferred um, structure of bonuses for them um, to give them some ongoing... Um, benefit, or sorry, not benefit, um, incentive to make sure they're doing the right thing. Mm. And it's a, an unusual that they want to bring that in for CEOs, but then take that away, which is essentially what the, in some respects, some of that trail is. It's an incentive to make sure that we've done the right thing with the mortgage in the first place. And uh, if we don't do the right thing, we lose that payment. So, so has, that, has that been introduced, or is it just we know the trails are safe till 20? 22, I think you said, yeah, yeah. and then that's yeah, going to be reviewed? That, yeah, at this stage it is safe and, and still to be reviewed. So it's just, like I say, it's interesting that the, the juxtaposition of the versus CEOs of businesses versus uh, a mortgage broker and, and placing mortgages. So so what are, the, what are the changes to your industry in the short term? I, I know there's a proposal, legislation around acting in the best interest. Is, there, is that the only sort of government change that's going to come in in the next couple of years? That would probably be the, the principal one, um, and the, I don't think it has a, it would have an actual direct impact because a lot of brokers and the majority of brokers mm-hmm. do act in their client's best interests anyway because, again, if we don't do anything right, we ultimately don't get paid. So, And long-term, for a long-term business, we do need to obviously have repetitive business or recommendations from our clients. So it, it is a... The cash twenty two. If we do one thing wrong here, we get we get penalised elsewhere for it. So, Damon, when you heard the criticism of mortgage brokers, which was invariably and very happily carried by many media outlets, um, mm. where I think the journalist really doesn't understand the industry, what was the the criticism of you guys that that bit you the most, and what was your response to, to people who maybe levelled those criticisms at you and your industry? Well, that started off with Commissioner Hayne asking, who does a broker work for? And that question never got answered. And in fact, it, it was never asked of a mortgage broker in the Royal Commission. Mm. Um, it was interesting that 
everyone who was asked or related to how brokers were paid and, and so forth, they were an outsider commenting on it rather than a, a, an informed and uh, position from within the broking industry. So it was difficult to give that sort of view when, you're, when there's no knowledge of it. And there was a certain CEO of a bank that made that point. Mm. Um, so from my point of view, when, when I was uh, talking with people, it was just explain what we did. And collectively, since the Royal Commission, the, the industry has come out and explained itself much better, thank goodness. It's come together in various avenues. And in my personal experience, I've found it much easier to approach another broker mm. who is or would normally be, if you like, in competition but we can now quite easily converse and ask and look for support in some cases um, on difficult scenarios or difficult questions. So it, it really has brought the industry together and allowed us to explain ourselves much better now, I think. Okay, so I guess the the, the, the only criticism, criticism I would have of some mortgage brokers would be that they move their clients out of one loan into another because they get a bigger commission from the lending institution. Is there a big variety in the, the potential um, kickbacks or, or commissions you would get from various lenders in the marketplace, Damon? No, it's, I won't say it's flat, but the, the difference between both uh, different lenders mm. is minimal. Um, and so we do get a, a larger proportion at the upfront, which is when the loan originally settles and then ongoing is a, a smaller portion. Um, and the, the if you want to change or if ne- a loan needs to be changed to a different lender for that upfront payment, it's not for the payment. It's for the benefit of the client. It always is. Mm. The client is the one ultimately making a decision of where they want to go or what, or what loan is, is used by themselves or that the um, broker provides. It's, it's never the broker saying, hey, you should go to this one because it's the biggest commission. Yeah. In isolation, if you're looking at a single transaction, that could be argued. Yeah. But when you're looking at it across a whole portfolio or, or an individual's ongoing business, mm. it doesn't work that way. And, and I would have thought it'd be very rare for someone who's on, a, say, a 4% home loan and you decide to switch them to a 4.25% home loan, they wouldn't say, hang on. This rate's going up. Why would yeah. I want to do that? In, in many ways, even if you were getting a higher commission, as long as they get go from four percent to three and a half percent, who gives a who gives a cotton needle? I don't give a damn what you guys get. As long as I go from four percent to three point five percent, I can't see a big problem with it. No, it's dead right. And I've had people who got in touch with me when the rate started going up a few months ago, and they're like, "Oh, can we look at changing?" And I'm like. Well, overall, it was maybe $150 more a year was in some cases. Mm. But and now the rates have come down. They haven't called me. <laughs> and, and like you say, it's, it's the same if we change from a different lender. It's, they're, they're wanting that lower rate. Mm. And, um, and, and, and David, that, what about one of the other criticisms, perhaps, that uh, you know not all mortgage brokers offer all products? So, you know, uh, let me, let's go to your business. Do you provide yeah. loans from all the financial institutions or just uh, just a handful? Uh, I've, I've got a panel of about 40-odd lenders. Right. Um, some of them, are, well, the, the big four are there available. Um, I have a, uh, I, I tend to go elsewhere. I don't look at them first. 
Um, and there, but there's also lenders on there that you wouldn't use and most lenders or most borrowers wouldn't even approach uh, just simply because they are specialised and their criteria is um, quite different from your normal lenders. So it, it depends on the circumstances of the person and especially the, the timeframes in some cases that you might need to, to approach a lender over. Right. So it's... <laughs> And so when, if, when, when the legislation is, is changed to require you by law to act in the best interests of clients, does that mean that you'll have to uh, consider other lenders? Or, I mean, just trying to how, what, 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 realistically, what change will that mean to your business practice? Personally, for me, well, unless, it, unless they specify I've got to do a particular thing in, in regard to, hey, we need to consider this lender because they're the best one in the market by the regulator's view then I'm looking at a portfolio and looking, and as we've said before, it's typically the best rate is what we're looking for. So we start start there and then we find the lender that fits the criteria of the client or vice versa. It's, there's often small things within a policy that a lender offers or doesn't offer that rules out uh, that lender for the person we're talking about. Now, it might be that they get all their income from investments. Now, there's some lenders that, just simply won't accept that sort of income unless it's all through tax returns. They, and if the tax returns aren't done, then we can't go to that lender. Mm. So why, why is it that the best lender did, uh, predicated based on a, um, a particular circumstance when it may not be appropriate for that person? Mm. Now, Damon, I think for me, I'm really glad you guys aren't being you know, hauled over the coals as uh, Hayne was sort of threatening um, to do to you. But more important mm. to me is, are banks making it easier for your clients to get money now, say compared to six months and 12 months ago? The criteria is getting tougher in the respect of they're looking much more closely at expenses and those sort of things. Um, but in terms of actually the loans, that there are the lenders are still lending but you just got to set a tougher criteria. And that's where brokers are becoming much more relevant mm. because we're able to give that choice and provide, hey, this, this lender actually suits you better than this one over here. Yeah. Um, and that's where certainly the, the criteria or the needs for a brokers are much more important now. And that's proven with the volume of, of loans now being done by brokers. Mm. We're doing just short of 60% of all loans settled in Australia. Yeah, so a threat has become an opportunity. It, it indeed has, yes. Okay, thanks very much for joining us, Damon. Thank you very much, Peter. That's Damon McIntyre, our mortgage broker from Ruahini Finance. Paul, Ruahini, did you know there was a mountain called Ruahini in New Zealand? Well, you're up on your New Zealand geography, well, Peter, so uh, congratulations on, on that front. But yeah. no, look, I do now. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Paul, that's the end of our Switzer show. Uh, as always, enjoyed it. And I've got to say, I think the, the young bloke who's running uh, the uh, Financial Planning Association of has got potential. Yeah, look, we gave him a bit of a hard time beforehand, Peter. Mm. But look, I think uh, it, look, they seem like they, they've got some pretty clear ideas about how they can, the role they can play in improving the industry and working with government. This is not an easy set of changes. No. And uh, I think, you know, you've got to trade off. Obviously, there's a need for advice, but you've got to make sure it's, it's according to the higher standards, it is ethical, mm. and the consumer comes first. And I think that uh, there's a change as that goes through the industry too. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you guys next week. Triple time! <laughs>